0: Have you ever sat there looking at your product roadmap and asked yourself, I wonder what my competitors are doing right now? If you have, then tonight's episode could be just the thing you're looking for. Speaking of competitors, there's no reason for product management and development teams to be at each other's throats. If you're a non-technical product manager or founder and want to build bridges with your technical teams, why not check out Skip Level? Skip Level is an on-demand training program that helps professionals and teams become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. You can learn the knowledge and skills you need to better communicate with devs and become more confident in your day-to-day role with the Skip Level program. So head over to onenightinproduct.com slash skip level to find out more and make sure to use referral code OKIP to support this podcast. You can check the show notes for more details. Alright, so competitor analysis. Who should do it? What questions can it answer? What do you do with the results? And how can you avoid getting bitten by the green-eyed monster and building loads of stuff you don't need just because someone else has it? For answers to all these questions and much more, stick with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Bethan Vincent. Bethan's a marketing leader, entrepreneur, podcaster, and former parliamentary candidate who's now helping clients with their campaigns with marketing consultancy Open Velocity. Bethan hates performative LinkedIn posts, but is a keen fan of medieval history, once worked as a historic property steward at a castle. Tonight, we're going to talk about how to breach the defences of our competitors, get their bards to sing about what they're doing, and work out how we can best respond and secure our own moats with competitor analysis. And if all that castle talk seems a bit contrived, well, I am a knight. Hi, Bethan. How are you tonight?
1: I am really good, thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was fantastic.
0: I sometimes as I'm reading them out, start to cringe inwardly at my own self. But at the same time, I guess it's very on brand at the moment. So apologies to anyone who doesn't like dad jokes. But enough about me, let's talk about you. So you're the founder and a managing partner at Open Velocity. So what specific problem does Open Velocity solve for the world?
1: We're a marketing strategy consultancy, which means lots of different things to lots of different people, but essentially <laughs> we are <laughs> all ex marketing directors, CMOs, so senior marketing leaders, and we go in and help start-up scale-up businesses build better marketing departments. So, you know, a lot of our clients come to us with challenges like we've had product-led growth and sales-led growth and we've never done any marketing, how do we do it? Or we've got a junior marketing team and they need a bit more direction and strategy. Or we've been really successful in the UK, we're looking to go into Europe or the US, how do we internationalise? So there's various different kind of challenge points, I guess, within our clients that we come in and help them solve.
0: Now, interesting. And how big's the firm got now? I know you started up a couple of years ago, but have you started to grow quite nicely or are you still kind of leading from the front yourself or kind of a combination of the two?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing client work. I think the thing was this business started out as me as an independent consultant And doing that and loving it and kind of realizing there was a bigger business in it. So building the team out. But I obviously still love the work. So we're at four people, three kind of senior consultants within the business, one kind of ops person helping us out as well. But the plan is to grow. That's really where we're heading.
0: Oh, wow. I'll keep my eyes open and see when I can invest. But what sort of clients are you working for? You just touched on sort of startups, but is it just sort of the scrappy startups and scale ups? Or do you also have a play for bigger firms, you know, all the way up to like the big enterprises? Or are you really kind of operating in that sort of lower maturity phase?
1: Yeah, I think that reflects our maturity phase actually. So traditionally, our clients have been in the the funded startup space. So what I mean by that is they have budget to spend on marketing and scale ups as well. So <laughs> two to twenty million has been historically our sweet spot. But I think as we grow and evolve, we definitely we're working on a couple of propositions for larger companies and really coming in as a bit more of a kind of scalpel to help with very specific challenges. And that, again, might be around internationalization or positioning or adding new product service lines.
0: Oh, Interesting. And I'm sure there are plenty of companies out there, maybe even some listening to this, that need that sort of thing. Because it is interesting seeing how marketing and also specifically product marketing evolves in these companies or to some extent doesn't evolve. And like, I do think it's really important for people to start to take the help and expertise where they can.
1: Absolutely and I think one of the things we see a lot in clients is they do what we call scattergun marketing where they're just throwing <laughs> they're throwing stuff at the wall seeing what fits you know there's no specific strategy behind it there's a lot of budget a lot of time wastage so really a lot of a lot of what we do is kind of reducing the marketing surface area they've got to service and making that kind of reasonable and and actionable and executable
0: Yeah I think it's also interesting sometimes you see Say producty SaaS type companies get a very traditional marketer in to cover say some of the brand stuff or some of the traditional event based marketing and stuff like that. But maybe they don't have any muscles at all for the more product or like you say product led growth. Even like the the more SaaS style marketing and kind of seems like they kind of build themselves into a bit of a corner because they never again get that support. So again, getting someone in, the, you know, obviously they could hire someone full time to do that, but then they can also get you in as a fractional, right? Yeah. And that's an interesting thing because I'm doing some fractional work at the moment on a on the product side. And for me, it was a bit of a change because, of course, you've, well, certainly for me, I was very used to working full-time in companies and kind of throwing myself into it, being there for the long term. And then you go into this fractional world and you don't have, obviously, the full-time commitment. You're kind of dipping in and out and you're trying to use your time as best you can. Was that something that you found particularly easy to get your head around, or have you always been kind of good at compartmentalizing like that? Or did you find it a bit of a, a switch over to kind of get into that more transactional mindset?
1: Well I think this comes back to kind of my career history in that I've been agency side and client side. So agency side obviously is a lot of context switching and dealing with multiple clients. And actually what was surprising for me was that a lot of my clients don't need a full-time CMO. They really don't and when I go in it actually is Quite easy to manage the amount of time they have and availability they have from us because they don't need someone full time executing or doing this stuff. That person would be sat twiddling their thumbs as a very expensive resource.
0: <laughs> or just start to do some sales enablement slides or something like that instead. But before that, I mean, you just touched on it as well. You were working in marketing for a number of companies before that and before you struck out on your own. So, what was it that made you specifically want to go out and start your own sort of do that fractional work, do your own consultancy and? and be your own person rather than working specifically for someone else?
1: A couple of things. So I was brand side, client side before I came out and did consultancy. And I'd been with that brand for two and a half years. You know, we got it to a really great point. And frankly, I was a little bit bored. <laughs> and I wanted, yeah, I wanted my next challenge. And also it was middle of the pandemic when I kind of left. So it was a bit of a risky move, but also the pandemic showed me that, you know, there's always going to be something risky around the corner. You know, your government might mandate a lockdown tomorrow, (laughs) which was, you know, that really showed me that everything you think is really certain and predictable in life isn't. So you might as well embrace that uncertainty and run a business. Why not?
0: No, absolutely. Did you feel at all nervous? Like, so for example, again, I've gone down a similar path more recently. And one of the big worries for me, obviously, with family commitments, at least from my side, you know, got a house to look after, kids to feed and clothe. I needed to make sure I at least had some runway and some level of certainty that there was going to be something at the end of it before I had to slink back and get a job with my tail between my legs. Did you feel any of that fear or was it all very like locked in from the start?
1: Yes and no. I built up and I very consciously built up my own personal brand for a couple of years before leading. And that really helped because I had clients in the bag.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I also had runway as well. And I think the pandemic obviously forced everyone, didn't force everyone, enabled everyone to save and that really helped. But yeah, of course, I was, I was so scared. I still am every day. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't go away. The bigger you get, the more scared you get.
0: <laughs> There's always another problem around the corner. But on your LinkedIn, you said, and I quote, that you've taken on companies like Google and AWS to do innovative positioning, customer-centric messaging, and delivering campaigns with a test and learn mentality. Now obviously, everyone wants to take on the big tech giants, so do you have any specific tips for marketers looking to take on those big tech giants other than innovative positioning customer centric messaging and delivering campaigns with a test and learn mentality?
1: yeah, I mean, really interesting position there where literally you're you're acquiring customers through the channel owned by your competitor. so I was working in <laughs> <laughs> in the kind of cloud hosting space, so obviously Google Cloud main competitor, and we were using Google to advertise. And I think it's, you know, we couldn't outspend them. We couldn't outproduce content faster than them. So you've got to kind of use your nimbleness to your advantage. And at that time, sustainability was quite a nascent thing. Obviously, brands are all over it now, but it was a point of differentiation that we could easily implement that would take Google, for example, to, you know, have completely green data centers and green energy going into them years and they've done it now. They've done that flip. Well, majority done that flip, but we could execute on that. So being able to be fast, nimble is an advantage. Just work out what that enables you to do that your competitor can't do because of their scale.
0: Absolutely. The little speed boats, although obviously the little speed boats sometimes get caught up in the wash as well, but it seems like you've, uh, you've found a way. But speaking of tech, your website says that you've been working at the intersection between marketing, product, and engineering and technology companies, which obviously, Yeah, for me, that starts to sound a little bit more like a product manager than a marketer, like someone that's kind of got a foot in everything. So did you ever consider going into products or is marketing too much in your blood that you just had to go down that path?
1: Interesting. I was part of a product team for a while. So I was part of a cross-functional product team. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I I think I, so I cannot, I understand code, but the code I write breaks everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the same with some developers. Don't worry (laughs) about
1: that. I empathize greatly with them. So, I think going into that full product role was never something that I fully wanted to embrace just because I knew my technical knowledge wasn't the best. And actually, it wasn't an area I was super interested in developing. You know, I love the people side of it, I love the stakeholder management negotiation. And obviously, marketing has a lot of the same issues as product, to be perfectly honest. And there's a lot of intersection between both. That's why, in a lot of client engagements, I end up working very heavily with product and I really try and you know, the CPO, get under their skin, understand where they're coming from and be a helper and enabler to them. So yeah, I I guess I'm kind of a failed product manager in the sense that my technical chops weren't there.
0: (laughs) Okay, speaking of developers, give me a few seconds to mention Skip Level one more time. Skip
1: Level is an on-demand
0: training program that helps non-technical professionals become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. So if that sounds interesting to you, make sure to go and check out the show notes for more details. All right. Back to the interview. Oh, I'm sure there are plenty of product managers that have failed marketers too, but is it all SaaS type product companies that you're working with now? Or do you also work with more service-based companies that also need marketing?
1: Yeah, a real mix. So as we grow in our kind of expertise and the number of consultants we have within the business grows, obviously the more industries and the more sector expertise we have. So it's a mix of B2B and B2C. So, you know, my background is, B2B SaaS and also B2B service based businesses, often digital service. So, selling things like you know development time, UI, UX time, that kind of stuff. But also, done interestingly, a lot of kind of niche, what I would call niche e commerce and retail as well. And another really big passion of mine is deep tech businesses. So, where there, there's often a kind of a fundamental piece of IP that maybe has come out through a university spin out or something that's very kind of science led, almost you know, where we do actually have some life sciences clients. So I guess I'm quite broad and quite interested in a lot of things. It's where there's a degree of complexity in the challenge. That's where we get really excited as a team.
0: Oh, there you go. Always good to keep yourself on the cutting edge. Mm. Sure, you'll be using ChatGPT just like everyone else.
1: Already do, mate. Already do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No judgment here. Right. So one of the things that you work on at Open Velocity, and you did a webinar on it recently as well, which is what made me put two and two together to try and get this up and running because I realized that I hadn't done an episode on this yet is competitor analysis now if I'm going to borrow someone else's definition so that I don't get it wrong MailChimp say that that's the process of identifying competitors in your industry and researching their different marketing strategies so that sounds pretty simple but is that too simple or does that pretty much cover it as far as you're concerned
1: I mean it it encapsulates the thrust of it I think that the concept is simple actually doing it and Collecting the data, analyzing the data, and that's really what our webinar was about. Telling people that it's not just enough to collect the data and be like, "Oh, we've got all of these spreadsheets with all of our, you know, competitors' site traffic and all of the keyword rankings and that stuff." You've actually got to do something with it, and that's the challenge we see in a lot of businesses.
0: No, absolutely, and it's interesting because obviously, and I noticed this in the webinar as well. You're talking, obviously, as a marketer, very much about the the marketing strategies that you can uncover through this competitive analysis like you can go out there and you can see what keywords they're buying or you, know, you can go and see what they've got on their website their pricing their packaging and a lot of that's really interesting to product people hmm. in general of course but then there's also the kind of element of competitive analysis which is like well i kind of just want to know what their product does like really in detail so that i can maybe go and either build some stuff like that too hopefully not that simple but you know like you probably want to have some thinking in between but like still yeah at least have a response so that when you're going out to potential customers that you can kind of preempt some of the stuff, which obviously is still very marketing, but also very product focused. So do you see your job when you're helping people do competitive analysis, kind of unearthing both of those types of areas, or is it very much focused on the kind of the marketing side and how they're taking their stuff out?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's on both of those areas. And I guess the caveat or the kind of explanation of that is we like to say we do marketing with a capital M. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, actually, because, you know, if you go back to if anyone's ever done any kind of marketing education you've got your p's and at the time i was doing it there were like four p's there's now like a million p's but product <laughs> is one of the p's of marketing so yeah actually i mean my argument would be that product sits under marketing not necessarily from an all chart perspective but mark oh yeah. this is
0: gonna get tasty yeah
1: I, my view is that product is a subset of marketing and product managers are actually marketers in disguise um <laughs> you may i completely appreciate other people have different views but yeah so we we look at all of those p's product pricing promotion packaging the 11 or 12 or 20 probably there are now
0: we'll ask chat gpt that'll tell us how many there are these days but i do fundamentally agree not necessarily that product people should be like a subset of marketing or report to the cmo although i have reported through to the cmo in the past don't think in some ways and this is my own controversial opinion that it's any Less valid to report the product team through the CMO than it is from the CTO, for example. If you don't have a CPO, but I do think it is critically important and something that I try and drive home with the people that I'm working with at the moment, and just in general, is that product people, product managers should care about all of that stuff: you know, pricing, packaging, positioning, support, all of the stuff that kind of goes around what they build. And I don't think it's. Well, I think it's fair to say that not all product managers seem to be involved in all of those things now that doesn't mean that they should be leading all of those things they can definitely like defer to experts but they should absolutely be interested in all of it because it's all part of that kind of whole product mentality where you're just sitting there saying well i need to care about all of it and i need to make everyone's life easier like my users sure but also i need to make it easier to sell easier to support all of those things so i absolutely agree that again whoever they report to that they should be interested in that stuff
1: yeah absolutely
0: but specifically then what questions do you tend to go out and try to answer first if you're maybe starting new competitor analysis off for a new company that you're working with are there kind of some basic questions that you want to go out there and find out the answers to straight out front or do they vary so massively depending on what the company's doing at the time
1: i'm going to give you the really annoying marketing answer of it depends
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's the product answer too don't we?
1: (laughs) it depends so You know, if it's, let's say some of our clients are startups who are going to market for the first time. So they might have, you know, they might have got product market fit and have beta testers and all of that stuff, but they're actually taking this to market. And what I often want to understand is how are they going to be positioned against the competitors? And from a messaging perspective, from a visual perspective, how do we differentiate them? And that's a really important thing. I mean, at any scale of business, that's an important thing to understand your competitive source of differentiation. But that that in the kind of startup phase is really important. And also it's kind of interesting often to look at the channels the incumbents are using to acquire customers. And, you know, there's various different tools we kind of leverage to in, you can inspect site traffic, see where it's coming from. You know, we can kind of manually look at you know social profiles. You know, you can even use things like Facebook's ad library to see the ads and actually some of their targeting options as well, which gives you a sense of actually who they're going after. So for a startup business, that's where I'd kind of start. Uh, Pricing, obviously, is important in that. And it's interesting, you know, you can differentiate on pricing to some degree. You know, I wouldn't ever want to differentiate on being the cheapest in market. But you could, you know, (laughs) when it comes to SaaS, it's interesting because actually, you know, do you go for usage-based pricing or do you go for seat-based pricing? And your competitor's usage-based actually is an opportunity for you to do seat-based because actually that's a better fit for the type of customer you want to acquire. So yeah there's lots of it's almost coming up with these kind of hypotheses questions that you want to then inspect your competitors against you know is our is our pricing differentiated can we make it more you know is there an opportunity to do it through that way
0: one interesting point that comes from that is you're comparing competitors obviously against each other but you're also comparing competitors against yourself and of course those competitors are probably doing the same against you as well and everyone's kind of all competitive analyzing each other probably periodically but are there any prerequisites that you think need to be in place before you can even start a decent competitor analysis? Because obviously, just finding out what they do is interesting. But if you don't have that context against what you do and, and the position you're in, then presumably it's not that useful. So, like, what needs to be in place to start with?
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got to know who your target market is because, you know, you have different, <laughs> you know, this is like, I mean, this is marketing 101, right? Who are you actually going after? And, I think also that helps you understand who are your direct competitors, i.e. the people going after the same audience, and who are your indirect competitors. And indirect competitors can be going for fringes of your audience, but also they can be people who offer maybe part of your solution, especially you see this a lot in SaaS, where people are quite, you know, there's a lot of vertical fragmentation happening and people slicing off parts of products and building a solution. So, you know, you might, a good example might be HubSpot. You know, there's loads of functionality within that tool. And yes, they're competing against Salesforce and the other big CRMs, but they're also competing against Pipedrive, for example, which is mostly, I mean, they're branching out now, but they used to be just sales enablement, you know, managing deal flow and stuff. They didn't have all the marketing wrapper around. So they're indirect competitors. And actually, just while on the point of indirect competitors, often your biggest competitor is your prospect doing nothing. And sticking with the status quo
0: oh yes
1: that often you know that that kind of switching cost especially in sas especially in b2b SaaS, is so high that you know that almost like when you're doing your competitor analysis have that as an option you're comparing against doing nothing
0: or even worse than that the idea of like well it's just some intern having to go on excel to try and work it out like i've worked in companies in the past where you're you know, you're trying to do something genuinely disruptive and ultimately game changing or potentially game changing, but there's always there's always someone there that can just kind of just crank through that work. I also have this sneaking suspicion like when people stand there and they're like, Oh well yeah, you know, this is a must have for our customers. Like our customers definitely need to do this, but it's like, well yeah, but things that people need to do, they're gonna work out a way to do one way or another, right? Like it yeah has to be really good, really much better for them to do it your way, not just to just do it any way that they can.
1: Yeah. We call it a sufficiently motivated user.
0: Yeah. (laughs) There you go should make that an acronym but when it comes to analyzing competitors there's obviously always some stuff on their website i mean you just touched on it just then. some of the things that you can look up as well like there's gonna be stuff on their website hopefully they've got a pricing matrix maybe they haven't or maybe it's like bronze silver gold and then call us for the enterprise one or something and you kind of have to try and sneakily try and work out how much they charge for that bit yeah maybe they've got some webinars or some demos on their website but that's all very carefully curated obviously they're not going to completely show you absolutely everything that's inside their kimono so to speak but if you're going out and trying to get as much information as you can about people like are there any frameworks or specific tools that you recommend to go and do that so to get the most information that you can rather than just sort of skimming the website and then moving on
1: yeah absolutely so ahrefs is a great place to start so that allows you to inspect competitors websites, so you can see keywords they're ranking for you can see a little bit into kind of traffic share from an organic perspective and from a paid perspective as well. The next kind of layer up from that is something called SimilarWeb, which is a competitive intelligence tool. We leverage that a lot. One of the things to be aware of with SimilarWeb is it doesn't really pick up anything on sites that have less than 5,000 visitors a month. So that's more if you're kind of a larger business and or at least your competitors are kind of larger but that's great that gives you a traffic share it sees you know shows you literally you know which channels they're using to drive traffic to their site you can also use it to inspect audience makeup and you know geographical traffic data you know where in the world is their audience coming from actually <laughs> one of the kind of hacky things i like to do that's often really insightful is use linkedin to look at the makeup of the team and especially the marketing team and what skills have they got on the marketing team because you can see on someone's profile often you can kind of work out, oh, that's a content person, they're probably gonna be really good at this and that. And that gives you a sense of what are they able to execute on as a team, because that's amazing in terms of working out, oh, okay, they're very content focused, great, but they've got no one in performance. They might be using an agency, similar web or AHRS might surface that to you, you know, on what pay channels they're using, but that could be that could give you a sense that actually maybe performance channels aren't the right thing to choose in this industry, or is there an opportunity because they're not doing it that we can do it? So that's a really good point actually to make is just because a competitor is doing something doesn't mean they're rational, reasonable, or know what the hell they're doing. So don't don't always (laughs) feel like you've got to copy everything your competitors do. In fact, that's a really bad strategy, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I remember speaking to a guy about pricing once, and he said that you'd never allow your competitors to define like your business plan or your investment models or anything like that. So why on earth would you allow them to define your pricing just because their pricing is set up in a certain way? And I think it's also really interesting from a product feature perspective as well. Like you sit there saying, well, yeah, everyone's probably had this conversation. Everyone listening to this probably had this conversation where you sit there and the CEO or the VP of sales come back and says, oh, we just went up against some other competitor in the marketplace or something like that. And They've got this feature, so now we have to have this feature because blah, blah, blah. And you sit there and you think, well, but is it really right to assume that that feature is actually working well for them and actually works for the whole market and is actually something that's sustainable and that they're actually having any success with at all? I guess trying to puncture that bubble of like, just because a competitor says that something's good doesn't actually mean it's good.
1: Yeah. And we kind of assume that companies are these kind of rational machines that make, you know, rational. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone who's been worked in a company knows this not to be true. Oh, yeah. So why why do we look at competitors and say, oh, competitor X is using PPC and bidding on these keywords? That means absolutely we need to be doing that. It must be working for the, the amount of money I've seen wasted on performance channels is Tens of billions probably, if not more. (laughs) But yeah, so don't assume that you just need to follow the pack. In fact, you want you want to be a leader and you wanna be doing things that other people can't replicate, can't do.
0: Yeah, and they'll all be looking at you thinking exactly the same thing as well. And they won't know what you're good at or what you aren't good at. And this is the kind of the dance that we're all doing with each other all the time, right? This kind of almost this performative, you talked about performative LinkedIn posts earlier. I mean that's a big (laughs) part of it, right? This performative art of saying how good you are but one thing i've struggled with a little bit in the past is how to keep up to date not just with the existing competitors that i know that we have because obviously it's pretty easy to go out and get a list of people that you know that you're competing with either because again you go to similar web or you just look at the people that kind of get raised up by the sales teams when they come back and they know that they're going up against but there's always going to be new competitors coming up and popping up as new companies starting up all the time So have you kind of got any hot tips for how to find some of those new entrants and start to realize who to track rather than the people that you've just already been tracking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I use, and I'm going to get the name of this wrong because it's gone up my hair, but Google Google keyword tracker. So basically tell me whenever, you know, this keyword appears on a website and you can set that up. You can set that up for your own brand terms. That's quite interesting in terms of looking, you know, brand mentions around the web. But if you know, let's say your product has a very specific kind of your quality management system, you know, you can can put that in. And yes, it will surface a lot of crap to you. There'll be a bit of noise in there. But anytime anyone kind of comes in market, especially on web, on their website, mention that term, you will get to know about it.
0: All right. So then you just have to sift through that crap and try and work out what it is that's actually a real company that's actually a threat. Because then there's this kind of whole, maybe for bigger companies, innovators dilemma problem, like all these piranhas snapping around, you don't know which one's going to take the biggest bite. So, I guess that leads on to my next question, though. Like, you've got competitors, you've got the existing competitors that you've already been aware of. You've maybe found some of these new ones and you're going to keep an eye on them as well. But this is all of a very complicated system, right? Everyone's doing new stuff all the time. Everyone's coming up with new strategies and new plans and new features and new marketing materials and all of that stuff. And that seems to then suppose that, well, we should probably not just do competitor analysis once, but that you should do it periodically, but is it about doing it periodically, or is it something that you have to kind of do continuously?
1: Yeah, I mean continuously, and um, but periodically, if that makes sense. So you know, oh, I, you
0: can't have both. Come on, you got to pick.
1: <laughs> I normally recommend clients do it either every six months or every quarter as a structured exercise, and they bring in sales and they bring in product, so that they're that you know everyone's kind of collaborating on it and inputting into it, and also into the analysis and the output at the back end, because realistically quarterly is a good cadence because there are very few organizations who can ship faster than that you know in terms of making (laughs) a decision getting something kind of approved internally and getting out to market so that especially in the SaaS world seems about the right kind of cadence to it but i think the key is saying and agreeing as you know leadership team or a team that we are going to do this we are going to commit time to it you know it's not an activity that you can clearly see the direct route to roi but it's so, so important, and it will lead you to insights into actions that do have a direct route to ROI.
0: Well, let's talk about those insights and actions then. I mean, and this is obviously the topic of the webinar you did the other day as well. So you've gone out, you've done this stuff, you've evaluated and got some information back from a bunch of different competitors, either new or existing ones that you were already aware of. What do you do after you've got that? Like You've got it all in a nice Excel sheet, or maybe you've paid for some SaaS tool to put it all into or put it onto a Miro board or whatever. But like, what's the guiding principle, or what are the guiding principles for what you would do with that information, and the kind of decisions that you could make, and the kind of time frame that you would make those decisions over as well?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm going to illustrate this with an example, and I think Ooh, it, there we go. Firstly, it's super important. That's why I talked about having those hypotheses you're going in to almost test the competitive data against. It's it's really important to have those kind of set up front. So we had a client who operates in a hyper competitive. SaaS space and our hypothesis was that basically every competitor will be talking about so it's back to the sustainability point actually in a a different industry but they were like sustainability should be our competitive advantage and we were saying no our hypothesis is that sustainability is a hygiene factor everyone's talking about it you're not going to be able to differentiate based on this so we could then go in and basically we did analysis of website copy and your messaging and that stuff and we could say yeah, every competitor talks about sustainability. And actually, we <laughs> combined this with customer research that we did. So they had 4,000 users, and we surveyed their users on their purchasing preferences. You want to be a bit careful with this kind of data because it's self-reported by the user, but users were basically telling us that they didn't care about sustainability. So that's an example of competitors all positioning themselves around something they feel is really important, but they've not actually tested it with their market who don't care about <laughs> it. So-,
0: so it's the blind leading the blind.
1: Yeah. And everyone, it was almost like this arms race of everyone talking about the sustainability credentials, getting B Corp certified. And then you combine this with this other insight and you're like, well, it doesn't matter. So that allowed us to, you know, the action out the back of that was sustainability isn't your competitive advantage. That's not something we want to push in your messaging. Actually, none of your competitors are talking about support as an option. And the caliber and we knew this business had such a high caliber of support offering again we knew from the customer data that was a really important consideration there's a space for you to talk about this and own this so hopefully it gives you kind of a tangible example i know i know in that i'm saying i've we've applied some customer research but this is why competitor analysis isn't done in isolation you know it's other things have got to be brought in but really you know if you're running the exercise again quarterly i think you know There should be a really clear cadence of maybe it takes you a month to pull in the data, maybe another month for the analysis. And that's essentially looking at trends. You know, it's it's evaluating things against your hypothesis. It's also sometimes you're just looking for interesting stuff. You're like, huh, (laughs) they're doing that. Okay, that's really interesting. That's where you've got to apply a bit of your, I guess, heuristic analysis on they're doing that but you know is that actually working for them you won't necessarily be able to see into the black box but you can get a sense and maybe you combine that with again maybe some of your own user data and you're kind of saying hmm, actually we don't think you know they're advertising again i'm picking on ppc again they're advertising (laughs) i (laughs) hate i don't hate ppc it's 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 a really good tool when used effectively but often a lot of spend gets bled on it but you know they might be You're bidding on these keywords and you can't see the conversions, you've not got access to their analytics, but you know from your own conversation with customers, that's not the purchase journey they take. You know, that's not the way they kind of make this decision. So actually, it's a bit weird and erroneous. And yes, let's just let them crack on with that. We'll focus our budget over here on something much more effective.
0: Yeah, I think actually one of the biggest takeaways that I think people should think about is this fact that you do need to start with a question. Rather than just go out there, just try and find out all the random things that can happen and then just panic because you see something that you think looks cooler than what you've got. And you're actually going out very systematically trying to work out what it is that you could maybe go against or what you don't need to worry about. So I do think it's really interesting because I've definitely seen situations in the past where people go into competitive research activities and they're kind of just, they're just fishing. Yeah. And I guess like you say, it's great to have interesting stuff, but you want to actually have a plan about what you're going to do about that and what you're actually going to take notice of, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, excellent advice for anyone listening to this that wants to think about maybe having a little look at what their competitors are doing these days. But where can people find you after this if they want to chat more about fractional marketing leadership or get you to do some competitor analysis for them or maybe try and get some inside track on some of that ancient castle gossip that you've inevitably (laughs) got hidden away somewhere?
1: So personally, you can find me pretty much on any social platform under the handle Beth and Vincent. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, even TikTok. I hate to say it.
0: <laughs>
1: hate to say it. Love to be on it. Oh, there you and go. <laughs> Open Velocity. So we're at openvelocity.co.uk. We do a lot of webinars. We have our own podcast, The Brave, as well. So please come and check us out. I'm always up for a conversation. I love talking shop as well. So even if you've got no purchase attempt, come and chat to me. I'd love to talk to you.
0: That sounds like a fair offer and something that your partners will no doubt be very worried about when they start to think about the incoming financial pipeline. But I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully you will get a few people coming for a nice little chat and find out a little bit more. Perfect. Uh, Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad we could find some time to get together and talk about some interesting areas about how we might understand our competitive landscape. Obviously, you and I will stay in touch, but as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.
0: As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to one night in Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest. But as for now, thanks. And good night.